Hello and welcome to the arbitration station. Is that the main issue of ISDS today? So we cannot invite Joel to the next episode. You're the native speaker. It can't be very unique. Unique means one of a kind. It's either unique or it's not. It's like you're, you're either <laughs> pregnant or you're not. Did you say Gayard? Mm-hmm. Yeah, with a D. I should not pronounce the D. I'm getting DCF tattooed on my neck tomorrow, actually. <laughs> it's a question I'm putting up there. <laughs>
bringing yeah, in this no, success. Yeah, no, we couldn't go, but we we met for dinner afterwards. Saw some old, saw an old colleague, so it was it was quite nice. Yeah. Um, but you know where people can keep track of the Acmea updates? Oh well, yeah, the I reporter. Oh, I, <laughs> it's still morning in New York. I'm not. I, uh-huh. I'm gonna sip of coffee and then I reporter. Yeah. There you go. Check our Twitter feed for what Joel looks like sipping his coffee. (laughs) Yes, Investment Arbitration Reporter, a.k.a. IA Reporter. Thank you, Brian. It's our sponsor for this season. It's an online service used by the world's leading law firms, universities, and government agencies. For more than 10 years, IA Reporter has offered up-to-the-minute coverage of new arbitrations, recent decisions, and notable policy developments. And as a New Year's gift to our listeners, I think this is the last chance you have. IA Reporter have agreed to offer extended free trials to institutions that are not currently subscribers. Please ask your library or your knowledge manager or your KM person, as Sadia would put it, to email <laughs> subscribe at iareporter.com and mention the offer code arbitration station. Subscribe at iareporter.com, offer code arbitration station. Well done, Joel. But we aren't done. We are so advanced in our podcast royalty regime reign that uh, we have another exciting opportunity for the the podcast, which is um, teaming up again with the ICC for Paris Arbitration Week. As everyone knows, it's the kickoff event for Paris Arbitration Week is their ICC European Conference. Uh, This year, it will be on Monday, 30th of March, um, and it We'll have a couple of topics which we will get into in further episodes, so stay tuned for that. But um, they have also a training on the 1st of April, the 2020. So that training includes thinking strategically about document production, the process, thinking strategically be about, they do a case scenario, proactive approaches addressing data protection. Um, so there, it's actually two days now mm-hmm. uh, if you include the training. But it's still early bird time, so don't forget to sign up. I think the early bird special, oh, is until 7th February 2020, Mm -hmm. so there's still time. Um, But luckily for our listeners, we have another discount code. Um, It's ARB-10, ARB-10. And if you enter that in when you sign up, you can do it for the early bird rate, the normal rate, the conference, the training, or a melange of any of the above. Um, so we're very excited to team up yeah. with again, and we will probably be recording live there on the 30th of March. Yeah, so you get 10% off on the additional um, early bird rate. Right, yeah, yeah, exactly. Which is, uh, which is great. Cheap. Yeah, cheap. Super bird. Mm. Super bird. <laughs> Super bird. <laughs> the earliest bird. Yeah. Um, what are we doing today, though? We have an exciting interview and an exciting Brian Kotick lecture. Yes, I will start the episode off talking about security for costs, um, which is a which will touch both on commercial and investment arbitration. And we will have an interview uh, with Diego Gosses uh, that we um, that I interviewed during the ancestral sessions in Vienna, and he will be speaking on damages. And happy fun time! I already forgot what we agreed that the name was. Tone, tone and culture in arbitration that we wish we had been told before we went into arbitration. It wasn't. Yes. <laughs> perfect. Like perfect. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's about like right. That. That's about right. That's yeah. True. Basically, what we want to talk about is when you enter the office into your arbitration practice, 
what you wish you would have known about the tone you should use in emails, the tone you should use with your colleagues, and the culture that generally surrounds us. Yeah, exactly. um, In the the office. Things that Um, law school does not prepare you for. No, absolutely. Exactly. So for those that have graduated law school, you'll laugh at the relatability of it and those leaving law school take out your pen and papers. (laughs) Okay, let's go. Okay, everyone, security for costs, or as they say in Latin, cautio judicatum solvi. Did you guys know that? I didn't. Thank you, Rishi, for putting that in. I had no idea. What is security for costs? Well, it is the interim protective measure. It's basically an interim order that a party can seek during an arbitration if one side is concerned that the other side may not have enough money to pay an adverse costs award. Another funny word we can use a lot in this segment is impecunious. Mm-hmm. It's my favorite word. And impecuniosity <laughs> did not know that was a word either. Uh, So how is it provided? Well, basically, a party can send some money into an escrow account or they provide a bank guarantee um, that the until the tribunal issues its final award. So if you are in the happy circumstance that you have an application for security costs and it's granted, that's basically how it would be fulfilled. In commercial arbitration, the statistic is out of the nine or 10 applications surveyed, only three were successful. So giving you a 33 percent chance and investment arbitration the 2019 White and Case Bickle empirical study provided that they were rejected in 87.5% of the cases. So they were granted in 12.5% of the cases. Mm-hmm. So why even do it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> is a question you can have in your head. But basically, um, the what makes security costs un- unique in instead of thinking of other interim measures as far as like keeping the status quo in an arbitration. Well, the security for costs raises specific issues of uh, access to justice, essentially. Um, But it also, on the other end of that spectrum, it could perhaps um, provide a disincentive for someone trying to bring a frivolous claim or counterclaim. Um, Because if you think about the advance on costs, for example, in an ICSID case, I mean, there's not it's hard in investment context because states rarely have counterclaims. But if you have the SEC, for example, and the SEC um, decides its costs, um, its advance on costs based on the amount in dispute, if uh, if the respondent brings a counterclaim and severely increases the amount in dispute, the parties have to bring advance on costs and share it equally, and the respondent doesn't want to pay, so then you have the claimant having to put up a lot of money. So the claimant may want to say, wait a second here, we're putting up a ton of money, we don't know if we're going to get it back, you've raised this counterclaim that we think is completely frivolous and added to the mountain dispute by exponentially, Um, we need you to put a security for costs just in case you lose, and we've spent so much money trying to defend your um, stupid claim. Um, So... This split between investment and commercial arbitration, um, how should we look at that um, in the lens of either one? And it's kind of what I was saying um, earlier, because counterclaims by states are quite uncommon. um, So you see it more in the commercial context. But you have Sam Luttrell, who's a partner at Clifford Chance, says an investment arbitration security for cost orders are almost always sought by states against the claimant investors. While security for costs in theory will be able to be invoked by the claimant investors against the state, the reality is that it almost exclusively is invoked by the states. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's kind of... Um, a difference you can see between the two. Um, To look at the power of a tribunal to order security for costs, 
Um, certain rules have specific provisions on it, um, and some have more general provisions as far as, um, you know, the ability to deal with the procedure of the case as it deems appropriate. Um, so to look at some of the specific provisions, you have the LCIA article um, 25.2 on interim and conservatory measures. And there it specifically says that the arbitral tribunal shall have the power upon the application and giving the parties a reasonable opportunity to respond to such application um, to uh, provide or procure security for legal costs and arbitration costs by way of deposit or bank guarantee or in any other manner and upon such terms as the arbitral tribunal considers appropriate in the circumstances. So you might get like a written undertaking, for example, instead of the bank guarantee. Um, SIAC Rule 27J is similar under the additional powers of the tribunal. Um, the SCC 38.1 provides for security for costs, saying that the arbitral tribunal may, in exceptional circumstances, and at the request of a party, order any claimant or counterclaimant to provide security for costs in any manner the arbitral tribunal deems appropriate. Um, if you look at the general provisions, there you kind of get into the investment context. Um, actually, SEC has investment cases, so I can't really make that division. But you have the ICC articles, uh, Article 28 on conservatory and interim measures. But the main one that, because Joel's obsessed with investment arbitration. Um, I is am. The ex <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, this, po this podcast slants a bit. Is the ICS convention um, Article 47.1, which says that the tribunal may, if it considers the circumstances so require, recommend any provisional measures which should be taken to preserve the respective rights of either party. And then you have the arbitration rule 39.1. That says a party may request that provisional measures for the preservation of its rights be recommended by the tribunal. Mm -hmm. um, so the question is, do these um, general powers give rise to a power to grant a security for costs? Mm -hmm. um, and this, you basically have the seminal case on security for costs and investment arbitration, especially in the exit context, is RSM v. St. Lucia. St. Lucia excuse me. Um, and you have the majority, who, so in that case, there was actually security for costs provided, which is why it's a seminal case, because it's the only case that are the, you know, I'm sure there's other ones we don't know of, but it's the main one. Mm -hmm. um, that, so you have the majority, and they said the following. They said, uh, the fact that ordering security for costs is not expressly provided for in the provisions does not exclude the tribunal's jurisdiction to issue such a measure. Rather, such provisions are phrased broadly and encompass any provisional measures. The tribunal, after carefully balancing the party's interest, deems appropriate to preserve the respective rights of either party. Um, they continued the fact that Article 47 of the Exit Convention and Exit Arbitration Rule 39 do not expressly make reference to security for costs in particular can easily be explained by the time at which the Exit Convention was drafted. In 1965, issues such as third-party funding and thus the shifting of the financial risk away from the claiming party were not as frequent. Um, so you have a couple things to point out there. One is that there's definitely a proportionality um, discussion um, between the two parties, which is often the case for interim measures as well. Um, but you also have this third party funding issue, which we will put a pin in for later on in the segment. Um, however, in that case, there was a dissent um, on this specific point of security for costs. Um, and in the dissent, they say, to suppose that any single exit tribunal has the power to order security for costs whenever, quote, it considers it appropriate or 
that circumstances so require, um, potentially imposes a sizable burden on ICSID investor claimants at the outset before their claims can ever be heard by tribunal rulings that are not only of ad hoc but also post hoc. Mm -hmm. Such unpredictability is unlikely to promote an atmosphere of mutual confidence and thus stimulate a larger flow of private international capital. Because if you think about it, you have a case that's technically an expropriation. To prove an expropriation, the value of your concern has gone to zero or close to zero. How are you then expected to pay the advance on costs that can be close to half a million dollars? Um, and that's can, kind can of- Can I throw something in, in here and, and just disrupt the machinery a little bit, Brian? Because the, okay. there's, there's a recent case that I don't think you'll mention simply for the reason that it was it's, it's as we record it is the most recent news item on IA Reporter. It was an ICSID uh, case where security was ordered. We can get back to the different aspects of it. The decision itself hasn't been published, just IA Reporter's analysis. Um, but there, the claimant is uh, actually not the, the original claimant uh, because it's an uh, in insolvency. So it's the the insolvency administrator has taken over uh -huh. the claim on behalf of the now insolvent claimant. So that was something that came up given what you just said that imagine that the claimant for whatever reason is affected not so severely by the measures that it's actually insolvent wouldn't it be unreasonable then to expect that they actually post security upfront when they have already like essentially lost all their money and that was something that the tribunal discussed there uh, and interestingly uh, in actually ordering the, the 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 requested security the tribunal seems to have added that if the claimant is like facing major obstacles in obtaining the security the tribunal could be willing to reconsider its order Ah. Which is, it's like a diplomatic way of, of addressing it. So they ordered it, but also if the claimant can come back and show that this was too much because we're insolvent or for some other reason, the tribunal may actually re revise its order. That is I mean, that whole burden shifting is, is interesting. And I, it's nice to hear that the burden was shifted after the security of costs were given because some of the discussions and the critique of it say that this, and especially in the third party funding context, which we'll talk about later, is that that burden shifts the claimant already in its application. Um, and it's kind of divided on whether you think that's appropriate or not. Um, so that, what, is that case now on iReporter? The case is not on iReporter, but it seems iReporter has read the case because there's an analysis of it, but it hasn't been published. Although I, uh, okay. I it probably will be at some point knowing how these things go. Keep your eyes peeled then. Um, so as as a, a within the exit contest, it also comes up in annulment. So that's something to like keep in the back of your head as well. Um, but at the general kind of underlying considerations of it, as I said, proportionality, it's that can be equated to considerations of equality between the parties. Um, and so to grant a security for costs, i.e., having this um, party put money up front more than it had expected in entering in to the arbitration, you have a disruption or a violation of the equality of the parties. Um, and we have a quote from Jean Clicky, which is um, very close to your heart. Uh, <laughs> she says, there's something analytically curious about the notion that an ICSID tribunal, while not empowered to protect a claimant's ability to collect on a possible merits award, nonetheless should intervene to protect a state's asserted, quote, right to collect on a possible costs award. For this reason, some tribunals have expressed doubt whether there really is a right in play for security for costs that is entitled to protection under 47 and 39.1. Um, some say that there have been this protectable right, and some think that there is not. 
Um, but I think that's actually a good point. Can I just add a, a footnote now because I have a vested interest that I this is this sounds like it's from Eskosol. Like, it is from Eskosol. It, it's not Jean Kalitsky speaking in her personal capacity. It's a it's a tribunal which she chaired. Right. Yeah. Good. <laughs> just just to put that. Yeah. No. This was <laughs> for the record. For the record. Okay. So now that we've talked around it plenty, um, let's talk about what you need to prove. Um, so in what circumstances do these still require? And we should say already in the beginning that whether it's general circumstances, exceptional circumstances, extreme circumstances will depend on the rules that are being applied, um, but also could be left up to interpretation of the tribunal. Um, but within that within those circumstances and similar to the notions of any interim measure, there are kind of ideas of like this necessity, urgency of not being able to collect your money in the adverse costs award. So there needs to be, it does need to show that there's a high economic and real economic risk um, or that there's some element of bad faith that could occur um, that would not allow a party to recover its costs. Um, so the first, so the, the um, we'll go and We'll go and explain them as we go. But the first one would be that the likelihood that the party would be subject to the order would satisfy a final cost award. That's kind of the general provision and the general conception, which is, can the um, is there an ability to pay? Is there a willing to willingness to pay? And is there ability to enforce a cost award? Um, so basically, where's the money at, and can it be um, enforced against? Um, in RSMV St. Lucia, the majority decided to grant the security for costs, as I said, um, and then they raised in that uh, in the reasoning that RSM had failed to pay costs in two recent exit arbitrations, and um, they admitted that it did not have sufficient financial resources to fund its case, and it was funded by an unknown third-party funder. Right. Um, so that was kind of a relevant um, discussion. Um, in South American Silver v. Bolivia, um, the arbitral tribunal stated that the lack of assets, the impossibility to show available economic resources, or the existence of economic risk or difficulties that affect the finances of a company are not per se reasons or justifications sufficient to warrant a security for costs. So just because the the party is impecunious on its own does not is not sufficient necessarily to warrant um, an and a security for costs. It is one of the considerations to be had. Um, the second uh, discussion is, um, or sorry, within that discussion, what can a try? What can you show that they would not be able to satisfy a cost award? Um, well, you'll basically need to get their financial statements and get some sort of SEC filings, or if they're an American company, um, something to show that they basically have nothing, or some kind of representation that shows they don't have have anything. And that could be a strategic decision. Um, as Rishi points out, it can often be a win-win tactic, or maybe he's coming from um, a Herbert Smith article. But uh, he writes uh, that you may obtain the information you need to make the application, or in the event that evidence of financial solvency is provided, save yourself from the cost and time of making the application altogether. Mm -hmm. So, um, And on the other end, if they, if they do have the money, but have stated that they don't have the money, you can um, create some sort of like piece of evidence to show that they're just refusing to pay, even though they're not impecunious mm -hmm. at all. Um, another consideration is the location of the non-applicant's assets. So um, 
again, is can it be enforced? Um, where can it be enforced? Where the assets against which they can be enforced are is are the assets located in a New York Convention jurisdiction? Um, have there been any evidence that this party against which the security for costs is sought? Um, are they trying to move their assets, dissipate their assets, liquidate their assets? Any sort of bad faith indication is something to consider. Um, moving on to the second discussion uh, uh, consideration by a tribunal would be whether the tribunal has prima facie jurisdiction over the merits of the claim. Um, the, the next uh, consideration would be the prospects of success of the claims and defenses. But because it's a prima facie discussion, it would not want to go into the merits of the substantive claims. Um, and that's just looking basically to make sure that the um, application and the underlying claims are not frivolous. Um, the fourth consideration would be if there's a change in financial circumstances since the parties agreed to arbitrate their dispute. Um, and I think that semi goes to what you're talking about, Joel, with this new case, that there's been a change of circumstance or that the party, after looking into providing the security for costs, would not be able to do so. Um, and so, yeah, if there's a change in circumstance, clearly that would be a problem. And then finally, the blanket consideration of fairness, balance of convenience and access to justice. Mm -hmm. So there'd be a weighing of all of those considerations and determining whether a security cost would be granted. Mm -hmm. Now, I've put a pin in the third party funding discussion uh, because it is quite new. Um, as the CEO of Burford Capital said, security for costs is the latest strategic front in respondents' efforts to avoid adjudications on the merits, and courts need to be vigilant to ensure that they do not become enablers of that strategy. Um, so the, the reason why this comes up so much in relation to security for costs is because the general perception is a party seeking funding does not have the money to bring the case themselves. So in that scenario that this impecunious claimant does not have the money to bring the claim and therefore needs third party funding, then they probably don't have the money to pay an adverse costs award. The reason why that's interesting is because in, and I looked at a third party funding agreement we had that I had you know years ago, and it basically said that the party would be liable in the event of an adverse costs award. So you know you have this third party funding gambling on the claimant's case, but if an adverse costs award comes, that's outside of the payment. So basically, they get any win, but they do not have to pay the loss, and that's called you know the gambler's nirvana: heads I win, and tails I do not lose. Um, so that's kind of why this comes up and why it's um, a really interesting discussion. Um, so we should credit that phrase to Gavin Griffith. Because yes. that's, that's from, I, I only know this because I wrote about this case where I reported when it came out. It's the RSM versus St. Lucia, uh, the gambler's nirvana thing that has been quoted and criticized by, we should say for, also by third party funders. It's, it's actually from his separate opinion, uh, not a dissenting opinion, an assenting opinion where he added this uh, phrase and he created a lot of teacup storms in the world of third party funding. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, the, the response from third party funder, funders were uh, quite aggressive. Mm -hmm. um, Christopher Bogart again saying a preposterous concept that ignores fundamental tenets of justice and economics. <laughs> the, the pejorative terms such as gambler's nirvana bespeaks a fundamental ignorance of the economics of litigation. Um, Yasmin Mohammed, who was actually on this podcast, 
said forcing a claimant to increase the funding budget to immediately pay a security for cost order and thereby requiring the funder to invest more capital up front could lower the potential return on investment for the funder and ultimately make the difference between the case continuing to be funded or not. Um, There was uh, an episode where we had uh, Yarek, who was representing the Czech Republic, um, who was speaking about this issue Mm. of, of, you know, um, of the third party funder. And and also he was saying, well, it's an issue because, first of all, a lot of them are not disclosed. So we first have to ask for disclosure or not of third party funders. And then when they do find out that there is funding, that they look at the, you know, arrangements, it Mm -hmm. doesn't provide for you know, payment uh, for security for costs and things like that. So then there, what do they do also? Yeah. It's also an issue. Yeah. This is, uh, I, I may be speaking out of school now because someone may have looked into this, but in my old life when I was still an academic, I always try to get students to look into this in their uh, master thesis. I think there are a few unpaid security orders out there that, that states have won, states who have won arbitrations. And I think mm-hmm. the Czech Republic is among them. Yeah, exactly. have, have not been able to actually collect on these orders for various reasons. Mm-hmm. And that's an yeah. overlooked fact, I think. Yeah, mm-hmm. no, it makes sense. I mean, they yeah. have to defend themselves in these claims. But if they win, their only win is that they don't have to pay themselves, but they lose all their the Yeah, and the cost fees. that they spent, you mm-hmm. know, in defending themselves. So it is a really big issue for sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this, I mean, the existence of third-party funding in a consideration for security costs has not been, uh, ha- has split the community, we'll say, not just the funders. Um, you have uh, Eurogas v. Slovakia, where they say that this, the existence of third-party funding does not necessarily constitute, per se, exceptional circumstances justifying that the respondent be granted an order. Um, South American Silver v. Bolivia, again, saying that the existence of, alone does not ev- evidence the impossibility or of payment or insolvency. So there you'd have to get into the financial statements of the mm-hmm. company, not the existence alone. Um, and then you have some commentators on it, including um, the ICA force on third-party funding um, that said... We conclude that the mere existence of a third-party funding is an argument neither for nor against granting security for costs. Rather, the crucial factors will be the non-applicant's financial situation and availability of assets viewed in light of whether or not the third-party funder has committed to cover adverse costs. So again, yeah, as long as it's expressed. But that, that's a whole you know, discussion on its own, how much you do have to disclose about the existence of third-party funders, and then also the the extent to which you disclose Mm -hmm. i.e the agreement itself which some people don't want um, to release for commercial reasons as well um and then gene kalicki again um has said and this This time time. has said it (laughs) (laughs) or has written it uh that the security is more likely to be awarded where the claimant's financial incompatibility appears the result of deliberate actions to shield itself from potential liability while maintaining the upside potential of a favorable merits award. A twist in the scenario is where the claimant's arbitration fees and expenses are being covered by a related entity who stands to gain if the claimant wins, but would not be liable to meet any award of costs that might be made against the claimant if it lost. Mm -hmm. She calls it an arbitral hit and run, which I really love. Um, It's and it's true. It's basically, you know, everybody wins on the claimant side, but there's really no there's no safeguard except for a security for cost order to ensure that a successful quote unquote respondent um, can get their money back. Yeah. Um, So that's that's it, guys. Do you have an indication of how long um, these proceedings can last for? 
the security, security for cost. Yeah, security for cost. Like, because it's obviously, you know, it can give rise to document production mm -hmm. and, and, you know, hearings and so on, right? Yeah, I had a case and it basically, it was, it turned into almost a, bif a bifurcation of the, right. you know, it's its own preliminary, dis like, yeah. it's an interim yeah. measures yeah, application yeah, yeah, exchange yeah. of two submissions. And when did it happen? Was it? Um, two years ago? Uh, no, what I mean is, Oh, in how stage. early? Yeah, how early in the right stage? Right after the statement of claim. Right after the statement of claim? Yeah. Okay, all right. Um, so they basically, yeah, they got the statement of claim, they put in the security for costs. Because at that yeah. point, you've kind of really articulated the amount yeah, of disputes. And then they say. Okay. Yeah. But, I mean, it's it's a lot of work. And, it is a lot of work. Mm -hmm. I had a case recently in a commercial arbitration where that has happened also. And it is, it is a lot of work. Yeah. So I was wondering if... You know, it's a, the planning of that as well is expensive, right? Mm -hmm. So you're going to be defending yourself on that. And, and if it's something that you're as a is now going to be kind of a litigation tactic for any respondent mm -hmm. in investment yeah. arbitration, then yeah. you really have to account for that. Because if a respondent, you know, if a respondent becomes sophisticated like the Czech Republic, they'll be minded to apply for it. it. To them, it's a marginal expense, but to the claimant, it could like mean a lot. It extends kind of the funding that they would get if they're in a funding situation, causing the funder to cough up yeah. more money to pay for the, yeah. the fees for that. Right. Wouldn't it be so, fair to say, given the jurisprudence you just laid out, that it is, I mean, in the average case, it's not worth trying. You need some indication either that the claimant won't be able to pay or that there is third party funding. But if it's like a, you know, your average uh, medium to large size multinational company, it's, you're not likely to get the order. So it, it might be just uh, in vain if you try to do that and add six months to the procedure for no reason. Yeah, but as a respondent state, sometimes that's part of your to delay. Mm. Yeah. Mm. No, I, yeah. I agree with you. It's it's a losing argument and you're just pissing off everyone involved, but <laughs> that's your strategy. Although, or not. You know, just I remember um, Jarek mentioned like he said that for him it wasn't sorry, it was a very important cost cost of defending themselves mm. and it was you know a couple of i think it was 10 or something million but he said it represented a lot of money for them yeah um the fact that they never got this money back is so yes they will probably make that <laughs> claim again in the future right. I imagine asking for security for cost um so i don't know if it's necessarily also just to you know, delay the proceedings or if it's just to justify they have a genuine also interest. the cost the genuine yeah 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 all right, um, let's move on to Diego. Yeah. So we're here at Oncetral Working Group 3 at the 38th session. And as promised, uh, we managed to interview um, another person who is acting as a state representative and who's sitting as the state representative for Pakistan today. And his name is Diego Gosses. Doesn't really sound Pakistani, but I will let you let him actually introduce himself. Hi, Diego. Hi, hi, Sadia. And uh, uh, it's a great pleasure to, to find a chance to chat a little bit. And instead of the microphone, it will be as informal as usually yes. we are. Yes. So what are you doing here uh, at the Uncentral Working Group? Can you just tell us a little bit of background of why you're here and who, who you are also? 
Absolutely. I'm an Argentine lawyer. Um, I graduated in, in Buenos Aires as a lawyer in 1998, that was last millennium already, and um, was invited uh, halfway through the first decade of the 2000s to um, assist Argentina in defending from the, the many ICSID and other investment cases that had been studied against it. I uh, work with the Argentine government representing Argentina in, in about some 50 cases, more, te- more or less. From there, um, I uh, then moved to Miami, where I currently reside. We started working with other sovereigns. We uh, represented uh, Bolivia and Ecuador and Venezuela in about some 20 other cases. Eventually, um, we were also invited to uh, represent Pakistan in some of its investment disputes and other other national arbitrations. And then uh, Pakistan being uh, uh, cognizant of the many uh, interesting and nuanced discussions that are taking place here at Working Group 3 was, was kind enough to, to invite us to, to join the delegation coming to the uh, Working Group 3 sessions and that's, that's the funny anecdote about the Argentine living in Miami and being a delegate for Pakistan in Vienna. <laughs> that's the history of globalization. <laughs> well, great. Well, uh, it's really great um, to sit down and chat a little bit with you. Um, if at some point we're interrupted, just, uh, you know, full disclosure, we are in a room, um, in a side room uh, during the session. So that might happen. But that's, you know, the life of Ancestral right here. Uh, live session. lost quarters that we are. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, and it, I was interested in hearing your views maybe on a specific topic that we chat a little bit about, which was damages. In your experience as a state representative or more generally speaking um, on how you know damages are dealt with in investment arbitration cases and also why do you think you know this topic is of somewhat relevance with what we're discussing right now uh, at the sessions um, so I, I became involved in the um, issues of damages in investment arbitration for, for the same reason people end up doing what they do which is uh, when I arrived it was the last one so I got to do what no one else what no one else wanted to do, and what no one wanted to do was damages. Mm-hmm. I had um, I, I came to international arbitration or to investment arbitration uh, from a transactional practice only. I used to do M and A, so I was fairly mm-hmm. familiar with what fair market value was and how you typically um, uh, come up with what the fair market value of an entity is for purposes of of um, uh, an actual purchase transaction mm-hmm. and uh, and of course that has nothing to do with what actually happens in valuation of damages in investment arbitration but someone uh, some some 15 years ago long 15 years ago uh, thought it was a a good idea that someone who used to work in both arbitration and transactional work assist in in translating what what's uh, a a um, an arbitration litigant meant by fair market value for purposes of national investment law and, mm-hmm. and how to explain that to valuators and how to feed the actual work you do in, in, in valuation uh, into, for instance, the cross-examination of, of experts in, in, in investment law. Yeah. And um, so, so one of the um, things you find out uh, very, very rapidly when you start working in a, a, a wide variety of, of simultaneous cases is that there's very little written out there that that is really useful for for quantification of damages mm-hmm. in, in general. There's, there's a lot on, on expropriatory mm-hmm. damages mm-hmm. And, and most treaties, if not all treaties, have some language dealing with how to uh, calculate um, uh, damages for expropriation, but there's very, very few, if, if any, 
treaties that have any language on how to compensate damages for other than expropriatory breaches of international law. And, and so That's true. Um, the way that that should be solved, and we'll get to why in practice that doesn't happen, but the way it should be solved is that you would go to uh, international law um, um, requirements and, and rules on, on, on the compensation of mm-hmm. damages. At some point you end up with the, the um, holdings of, of the um, articles of, before the, the draft articles on state responsibility for international wrongful acts mm-hmm. and the legal standard that you that reparation must undo the harm caused by the national mm-hmm. wrongful act. And, and that is an area that if not covered by the treaties, you would then go back to international customary law, mm-hmm. which means that all of these 600 plus cases under all of the 3,500 different treaties mm-hmm. is actually a matter that is sold through international customary law. Now, international customary law should be one and the same for all the treaties and all the cases, mm-hmm. but you get to the decisions and decisions start being all over the place. That is one of the areas where it was very early identified there was an urgent need for consistency, mm-hmm. coherence, which is one of the main mm-hmm. um, uh, drivers of, of discussion here mm-hmm. at Working Group 3. Um, the the um, discussion on, on consistency is premised on trying to find workable procedural devices as opposed to substantive devices because most of the substantive discussions and the um, areas for um, what, what, what in the jargon has been called uh, the last year justifiable inconsistencies yes. were, were inconsistencies based on the different language in the several thousand BATs that are at play. But when it comes to international customary law, same as when it comes down to interpreting the ICSI convention, mm-hmm. there's no real justifiable inconsistency right. on how to read Article 25 of the Articles on State Responsibility. Mm-hmm. Same as there is no way to... Uh, um, uh, find a justifiable inconsistency on how to interpret Article 25 of the ICSID Convention. Mm-hmm. Those are mm-hmm. areas it should be fairly easy, given that there's a limited pool of practitioners making arguments through the systems of an even more limited pool of valuation experts mm-hmm. before an equally limited pool of arbitrators mm-hmm. to reach compatible, if not comparable, decisions. But yet, you have, you know, th- like huge inconsistency. Every, every, every flavor imaginable. You have um, tribunals, even with repeat arbitrators, saying, "Well, a burden of proof applies the same mm-hmm. to issues of concession of damages than it does to the existence of a national wrongful act." So, if you prove liability but do not prove damages, mm-hmm. then I cannot issue damages, even if I find that liability mm-hmm. exists. Yeah. And other tribunals, including the same one of the same arbitrators, would say, well, but we do have a certain discretion in assessing damages, don't we? So even if the claimant party has not satisfied its burden of proof, if we found that a national wrongful act has occurred, we are by necessity forced to actually find what the consequences of, of that are. Mm-hmm. And the same arbitrator, without dissenting on either of those decisions, issued a completely different decision on that That's really point. interesting. So burden of proof is one of the inconsistency. Is there also inconsistency in the way you evaluate the damage also once you've established that there is liability? I, I think the, the um, tribunals have walked into this uh, untenable comfort zone mm-hmm. 
that um, they uh, have relaxed, I'd say, um, remarkably so, the, the requirements for causation. Mm-hmm. Um, what I mean by this is uh, some, some 15 years ago, I, I had the first investment cases where we had uh, discussions on damages and thinking cases like uh, the, the Suez v. Argentina cases, mm-hmm. um, uh, 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 themselves a, a rather unique um, um, procedural mm-hmm. um, battlefield in that there were uh, two different cases, originally three, but one was settled very early on, and then there were two remaining cases involving different water concessions in Argentina were being argued before two separate tribunals but which were comprised of the same three members mm-hmm. and the arguments were made on both cases by the same counsel. Mm-hmm. Many of the experts were repeat um, exper- experts mm-hmm. and, and, and the regulatory framework was different for the two concessions. One was for the uh, City of Buenos Aires and Greater Buenos Aires. At, at the time it was, and I think it, it remains to, to have been, the largest water concession in the world. Mm-hmm. It served a population of around some 17 million people in a single mm-hmm. contract. And the other was a concession for a, a province in the north of Argentina, province of, of Santa Fe. And uh, so there was a claim that said, well, this conduct by Argentina expropriated my investments, but if it had not, then the conduct by Argentina breached the fair and equitable treatment. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, at least just from the top of my head, that's the last time I saw a, a, a nuanced approach at that. They said, if you're going to follow the expropriation route, if the tribunal were to agree with us that there was an expropriation, yeah. these are the damages. And they okay. went, and fair market value, the full value of the entity. Okay. But if you do not, and if you feel that there has not been an expropriation, but still there is yeah. a breach of fair natural treatment, these are the damages that we experience. And they went with a... a um, Complete different but valuation? But for analysis of the specific measures right. that assumed that the entirety of the investment had not been lost, but just that the specific measures that were at the crux of an allegation of financial treatment mm-hmm. breaches uh, had some effects on the ultimate value. And say this would have been the value with mm-hmm. the measures, this would have been the value without the measures, the difference between the but for mm-hmm. scenario where the measures had not been adopted and the actual value with the measures is my furniture treatment damage. And and that that made for, you know, valuation reports in the hundreds of pages each. But there was a, a, a separate analysis, separate analysis. On, on damages for expropriation of, for other forms of breach. Was it also because the treaty provided specifically how the damage was going to gal- be calculated in case of expropriation? But that happens in every treaty I know. Right. Most okay. treaties I know. There, yes. there will be a and what was treaties. it? Fair macro value? What the, was it? So the, in that case, another variety, these were cases under... Um, in one case, it was under the Spanish Argentine BAT and the French Argentine BAT. In the other case, it was the only exit and non-exit consolidated case I know of. Oh. It was an ancestral case against Anglian Water Group uh-huh. and a, an exit case against uh, between Suez and uh, Interagua San Vivendi versus Argentina. Okay. Uh, that, that was the uh, English BAT for the ancestral case and the um, French BAT and the Spanish BAT uh, for for the exit case. Everything argued okay. uh, for, before the same three members of a tribunal. So the the um, language in all of those three different treaties, Spanish, French, English, mm-hmm. was was slightly different. But mm-hmm. that was that's that's not different than what you have in the other six hundred and fifty cases out there. Okay. That the treaty contains some right. language on how to value. 
um, um, expropriation and no language on how to value okay. Okay. Uh, the, the, the other breaches. Um, it is, a, I mean, if, if you start from, from a book on international public law, yeah. um, you will have uh, an instinctive approach to try and identify what is the actual consequence of the international wrongful act that mm -hmm. you can measure mm -hmm. in terms of, of damages. The, uh, international law as regards to damages has been very poor and, and, and seldom really thought of. Um, um, I think the... What do you mean by poor seldom? Like what I mean is, um, so the first time that I remember a detailed discussion uh -huh. on damages and quantification and causation right. by the ICJ is the damages phase of the Nicar Nicaragua-Colombia mm -hmm. uh, case just just months ago, mm -hmm. one year ago, when they were analyzing whether the uh, cost of the fuel to have a helicopter fly over the area where the ICJ had found on the liability mm -hmm. phase that there had been a breach of certain dues by, by Nicaragua. If the particular 10 gallons of fuel that were used for that trip made on a Tuesday at 10.30 in that helicopter, which was being piloted by this person, okay. was or was not sufficiently costly linked to the International Run for Land. Mm -hmm. But that was, I think, 2017, 2018. Mm -hmm. it's, it's 2017 at least, because mm -hmm. um, we were making an argument on this in, in a hearing in 2018. Mm. Um, but before that, it, you, you don't have a lot of discussion on on the practice of damages, not the theory on damages, but the practice on damages okay, in national public law yeah. proper. Okay. And do you think is it because is it somewhat linked in, and forgive me if you were, you were going to talk about this, of course, but um, of the training of the arbitrators with respect to damages as opposed to other aspects? I, I think counsel many times with, with very few exceptions feel that they are not expected to really understand the, the four corners of how valuation work operates. Mm -hmm. and, and as a result, they choose arbitrators who are similarly not particularly conversant with issues of damages. And it's, it's you know, uh, in, in a way, it's, it's a, a matter that results from a, a compound irresponsibility by counsel, by institutions, by arbitrators that they all feel that, well, I kind of can do it, mm -hmm. but it's like I kind of can do brain surgery. <laughs> and, you know, well, um, the, the, it's, it's, it's very interesting that um, th this is what most, if not all, claimants are really interested in, yet at the same time, it's one of the areas that they pay the least attention to, mm -hmm. uh, conceptually. Um, I, I remember one, one case, there was an argument that a, a, a certain investment had been expropriated and um, there had a, been a breach of financial treatment and also because the entity, there was a company um, who had managers and there had been uh, certain demonstrations at the residence of the managers during three days where the company was deciding whether to leave the country or not leave the country. And they say, well, those uh, demonstrations at the um, um, homes of the um, uh, managers breached full protection and security. And so 
we want damages because of that breach and the evaluator said fair market value which is the value at which a reasonably informed buyer and seller would transact on this non-being under any compulsion to transact. And I asked the evaluator, how is the value at which a reasonably informed purchaser would buy the company mm -hmm. a proxy to any loss caused by three-day demonstrations at the house of Mr. X being a manager for the company? How do you go from the International Wrongful Acts being full protection and security breach mm -hmm. and the fair value of the company itself? And the value said, well, I was instructed to do the calculation of those tenants and will not speak to the compensation standard. Mm -hmm. it, it simply is not an answer. Mm -hmm. and, and, and so the, there is um, a, a, um, an absolute... Um, um, laissez-faire by tribunals that let these mm -hmm. things go by and, 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 and in the end um, yeah what happened in that case well, so what happened in that case was that uh, the eventual finding was one of expropriation right okay um, and, uh, and and so the, the everything else kind of fits into the general sense the tribunal develops that there has been a breach of national law mm -hmm. but there is a very uh, limited actual dedication to the nuanced causation requirements. Mm -hmm. um, there's there's, there's uh, this, this other case, um, a, a mining case in, in Bolivia, where we, we represented Bolivia in the uh, later portions of, of the case. The damages were being sought based on the amount of mineral that could be extracted from that open pit mine and that could be sold and uh, Um, we, we did the calculation. This was um, a, a um, Borum Minerals uh, mine, open mm -hmm. pit, in um, a, a um, very desertic area in, in Bolivia. There were no roads towards that place. There was no running water. There's no supply of gas. There was no electricity. There was no plan to have either a road or water or electricity or, or gas. Mm -hmm. And um, if... Um, You, if you were thinking of extracting all of that mineral through yeah. the period on which this claim was being calculated for, that meant that every single inhabitant of the very little town on the side of this mine would have to shovel some 200 tons of boron per day. Mm -hmm. Anyone between ages 2 and 100 for 20 years, Sundays included. How do you plan to really do that? Mm -hmm. In a little town that has had the same population for 200 years, and there's no plans to actually build the road so anyone else could actually arrive there. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and the tribunal still awarded a reduced amount of damages because they, they realized that, well, yeah, I mean, that criticism kind of makes sense. Right. But, uh, but the result also does not make sense. I mean, they, mm -hmm. they realized that there was an issue with the decision, yes. but they didn't feel that it was necessary that their decision actually made sense on, in, in, in light of those criticisms. So that is, I think, one of the, the still remaining problems, that, that um, arguments are made which don't make mathematical sense, and mm -hmm. decisions are then made that also don't make mathematical sense. That, that the decisions made are basically around 30% of the amounts claimed. Right. 
does not solve the issue. It's, it's very Solomonic, but that is yeah. an insult in, in, in arbitrator's parlance. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just, there's, there's no logical, legally valid explanation. Do you think they're just kind of slicing the apple or just, you know, dividing or just thinking, weighing on balance, like, okay, there's been a breach. Yes, your argument on damages makes sense, but there's still be damage. So they just kind of roughly estimate, but the issue being that they're not, you know, grounding or basing their decision on something sophisticated. Is that what you're saying? That that's a very articulate way of putting. It. I'm not surprised that you you, you, you managed to pull it off. Um, if if I were to to look at it from a more technical um, um, standpoint, I would say what happens is that tribunals instinctively act as um, equity arbitrators regarding damages mm-hmm. and arbitrators of law regarding everything else, mm-hmm. which to me is a manifestation of powers. Mm. There is only now. I'm thinking from the last three or four years onwards, uh, a, a certain drive by ad hoc committees to really start thinking about the issues of damage and there have been partial elements that dealt specifically with quantification of, of, of damages. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's a sign in the right, in the right direction. It, it hasn't done away with the entirety of the problem. This is, is something that is still being discussed just across the room from where we're talking now mm-hmm. at, at, at the um, sessions in working group three. But uh, I think if, if, you, if you apply, uh, in the case of the, of the exit case, if you apply Article 42 mm-hmm. properly, there's one applicable law to the dispute, which is in national law and the law of the uh, respondent state to, or the, the party state to, to, mm-hmm. to the dispute. Um, and uh, and th- there's, there's no carve out mm-hmm. from that requirement for issues of damages. Mm-hmm. And, and you, you read the articles on state responsibility, the commentary to the articles on state responsibility, it's very clear that there is a legal requirement for causation. But if counsel is not conversant with damages and the tribunals are not conversant with damages, mm-hmm. it's very hard to really exercise any form of, of real control. Mm-hmm. Um, the clients are kind of satisfied Respondent that it's only paying a small portion of the amount claimed. Mm-hmm. The claimer is still making uh, a sizable amount of money because, of course, they, yeah. they make a stupidly larger multiple of the claim be the amount that they actually go for, so that when it's divided by three, they still get that day uh, at the bank. And, and so that has been, I'd say, the terrible scenario that, that, mm-hmm. that we face. Uh, and I, it's leaving a, a very smelly trail of very bad decisions mm-hmm. for the legal archaeologists that come after and say, so, so what were these people doing in 20th and 21st century? How did they come with these calculations? There is no, no real good law being left at, 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 at the end of this. So today, I mean, today we're talking about, uh, across the room, um, specifically on the multilateral investment court and enforcement issue in the appellate body. Do you think, or what are your suggestions, I'd put it more that way, so that when we're talking about this new body and you know changing the system um, from a structural perspective, how can we also assess this issue of you know sophistication or you know what you're talking about about being not conversant with damages and and this smelly trail of decisions so that we're reaching a you know more consistent body of not so much smelly decisions. <laughs> well, so I, I mean. Um, Claimants have to make responsible claims. Respondents have to take a responsible approach at working on damages. Tribunals have to act responsibly 
regarding how to apply the the causation requirements that mm -hmm. the Arab part of the national law have been for mm -hmm. 200 years, mm -hmm. um, and uh, and institutions have to really do all in their power to to curb mm -hmm. uh, these the the irresponsibility. Uh, by the tribunals, mm -hmm. and the tribunals should do everything to curb the irresponsibility by counsel, mm -hmm. and counsel should be doing everything to curb irresponsibility by their clients, and 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 so that's I think um, the the um, hoped for uh, result of, of this this kind of thing. the fact that there's there's been um, a, a a global consensus that there is an issue about this, mm -hmm. and that. Um, Respondent states in in Africa and Asia and the Americas and Europe have been faced with terrible decisions and damages that cannot be explained. Uh, is is uh, I think a a terrible but useful sign that mm -hmm. these are the things that ha you have to yeah. pay attention to. The number of conferences on damages in investment arbitration that have been invited to have spoken mm -hmm. out or whatnot yeah, yeah. in the last two three years. Yeah. Are, are a high multiple of what was the case 10 years ago. But it seems like it's more of a problem of the substance of the law as opposed to like the structure of the system. Would you agree or do you think there's a link? I think um, there, was, there was a very good paper um, about a decade ago already by Lucy Reed mm -hmm. um, called um, Less is More, More or Less. And, and she talked about the issue of damages calling it the uh, Franz Ferdinand's effect. And... Uh, the Franz Ferdinand effect is that you have, you know, three years and a half to develop all of your case and eventually at the last two minutes of your closing arguments, you say, oh, and this issue of damages. And then you have three slides, you have two minutes to talk about them and it kind of gets fed into the entire bulk of materials you put before the tribunal. No one really takes a lot of time to go through that. that, that that's what happened most of the cases and, and in that sense i would agree that's that's a structural mm -hmm. issue that that uh that you can solve if you as, as counselors and arbitrator you can just try and force a certain amount of time to be okay you know mm -hmm. set set out mm -hmm. from from the beginning to deal with issues of damages so mm -hmm. that it doesn't get just you know run over by, by the merits of the case or the or the the legal yes. experts discussing whether or not investment and the salini is required or not you still need some time to actually talk about damages. And, and, and there are often times where, you know, proceedings are bifurcated and you have a specific hearing on quantum, right? Absolutely. And, and, but but it's, it's, not, it's not always an innocent choice mm -hmm. to, to bifurcate or, as, as I've had a number of cases these last few years, trifurcate the case that you trifurcate, have. Trifurcate, yes, okay. That, uh, so jurisdiction merits. They have jurisdiction and the merits mm -hmm. and then you have damages. But when you... It's... Many, many respondents, especially if, if, if they're not so very sophisticated, which is not the case of any of the clients I've worked with in investment arbitration uh, in, in the last 15 years, but, but I can see that a respondent would feel that structuring the case such that it is trifurcated may lend itself to assume that damages will exist, which means that a, a certain liability will be proven, which means that a certain amount of jurisdiction will be proven to exist. And so uh, there's, there's sometimes strategic considerations behind whether to propose or, or, 
or, or allow that a trifurcation occurs. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, but I, I've, I've had a, a number of cases where tribunals would say, probably not from the beginning, but as, as, as the merits phase uh, developed, just, just provide guidance to the party saying, you know, don't, don't spend your time and money on damages now. If we do find that that liability exists, we will then open uh, discussion for a phase on, on, on damages. And, and that, in, in a way, forces the parties to take time yeah. for, for, for that specific issue. But, but, but of course, that, that requires parties and counsel and, and the tribunal to actually mm -hmm. be in, in talking terms to, to, to the science and, and mm -hmm. the, the, the legal logic behind, behind damages. Mm -hmm. Well, hopefully, you know, with the... I mean, the, the, the flip side of, of all these huge mega billion awards that were uh, rendered recently against states, including Pakistan and, you know, Nigeria, et cetera, just giving some examples there are going to... Um, so shared arbitrating in those tribunals, you know? <laughs> yes. They, they, I, I hope that this is going to open the, the discussion even further and people are going to talk about more about the issue of damages. Um, do you have any final concluding points on how to make things better with respect to the assessment of damages? Um, I, I would think it's, it's, it's important and good for everyone, claimants, respondents, tribunals, institutions, that um, the, the discussions on causation be taken very, very um, um, seriously. And, and, and there was a... Um, I, I remember was this, 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 this paper by Rusty Park uh, mm -hmm. that, that uh, said that on his way to university he saw a, a, a shoe repair shop that had a sign that said uh, that we, ha we have good prices, um, high quality and rapid turnover, choose two of the three. And that's arbitration, <laughs> he said. But, but that only applies to, to commercial arbitration. When, when the money you're spending is... is uh, the money of uh, Nigeria mm -hmm. that was was there was a, an, an award in damages for nine billion dollars mm -hmm. against Nigeria. Oh, you you're talking about the money of the province of Balochistan in mm -hmm. in in the west of Pakistan, an award that it represents a very high proportion of the GDP of the set of of, of that province. That's about two hundred and fifty times the health and budget education combined. Mm -hmm. um, then uh, a, 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 a certain call to reasonableness becomes necessary. The, the interests at stake are not the interests of the disputing parties only. It's not the interests of the council to disputing parties only. There's stakeholders there that, that need all of the three elements in, in Rusty Park's um, mm -hmm. shoe repair shop to, to mm -hmm. be complied with. It has to be fast. Mm -hmm. This cannot take... 10 years, this, this case where an award on damages uh, in, in the billions of dollars was, was issued was started in 2011, mm -hmm. it's of, of course January 2020, and a request for annulment was filed in November last year. We still don't have a, an annulment committee uh, uh, constituted, so, so it's very likely that case will last an additional two years. Mm -hmm. That is 10 years mm -hmm. from request for arbitration to a final decision. Mm -hmm. uh, that, that simply cannot Hold water. Yeah. There's, there's investment decisions that said a seven-year delay by a court in finding a making a final finding is a denial of justice. But if an investment decision takes 12 years to become final, right. really, what, what is the, the test that you're going to apply? So that's that's one. You need to have a very high quality. You have to be able to explain 
to you know stakeholders to the, the the constituencies in the places where this money is being collected to pay a claim why this money is being collected for that purpose why the award is yeah. in that amount mm-hmm. and, and and you need to have um a a a, a very uh cost effective method and this this case, this pakistan case we're mentioning uh, it wasn't of course our part of the bill that, that made it that large but the claimant submitted a statement of costs of 57 million dollars mm-hmm. that is more than many of the exit cases not not more than the legal fees more than the claim in many of the exit cases i've worked on in the last 15 years mm-hmm. it, it, it makes no sense that you would have an exit case and, and one of the parties would have a a, a legal fee of 57 million dollars you need mm-hmm. All three elements in Rusty Parks should, should repair. So you need the, the price, you need the quality, you need the, the length of the proceedings. And that's, that's the only way that you will convince the national community that is across the room just shouting out loud that this incident is not quite working. Mm-hmm. Uh, states, civil society, all, all forms of um, 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 professional associations and, and the workers and the um, every every angle from civil society has between one and a hundred and fifty criticisms of the system. This is one of the ways to to do with those criticisms. Pay pay close attention to how this mm-hmm. this issue comes to come to oh. the issue. Yeah, well, thank you very much for this very interesting uh, summary on one piece of um, the ISDS system that that is dysfunctioning, <laughs> and hopefully um, we will listen and uh, things will be better in the next uh, decade. We hope, Hopefully. We hope. Thank Absolutely. you very much, Diego, for your time. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Tone and culture, what we wish we known when we started an arbitration. Have you guys prepared your long lists of things to discuss? Yes, laundry list. A very long list of what we, <laughs> we wish we knew. Yeah, it's an interesting one, I think, but also because it's, you know, it's it's the tone and culture is, you know, obviously the different uh, people you're working with and everyone is from a different culture and different mm-hmm. educational background. And so it's, it's not just, I think, specific to arbitration, right? It's when you move from a university uh, environment to a work environment yeah and maybe that actually is a question for you now that you have changed you know settings now that oh, yeah. a, re- a real job you mean yeah exactly now that you have a real job do you like yeah you know so. um, speak differently do you behave differently do you write emails differently yeah no and i mean now i'm working as a secretary which i also did before uh so i just do more of something that i did less of before I think, but but and no is the answer because it's still in arbitration. So it goes to the general point of what is specific to international arbitration as a workplace culture and the sort of we all get together from different backgrounds, as you say, and then we meet somewhere in the middle and we have established some sort of like universal code of how arbitrations are conducted. And one thing that hit me even when I started working in this field and that I still tell students, especially in moot court competitions, we may have talked about this, you and I, Brian, sometimes way mm-hmm. back when, it's how informal arbitration often is, yeah. especially compared to litigation and your domestic legal traditions and how students in moot courts or uh, junior practitioners, when they communicate, 
you know, still address arbitrators as if they're royalty slash rock stars slash Supreme Court justices, whereas arbitrators themselves are always on like first name basis and completely chilled and, and informal. And it takes a while to adjust to that while still maintaining the formal tone when it is appropriate, i.e. like email communication that goes out to both sides and the tribunal in arbitration, for example. Right. Oh, right. Hold on. Oh, sorry, sorry. <laughs> Yes, that's the attention. Please. Attention, please. Is it? Yeah. Sorry. Please take no action. Actually, I heard this on another podcast. I thought it was pretty funny. Wait, <laughs> there's a there's an all clear. It's alarm. gonna last like for two minutes. Sorry. Two minutes. Yeah, it's gonna be like. Sorry. <laughs> two minutes. Yeah, I mean, it's just two minutes. But... Oh my god. I'm so sorry. This <laughs> sounds like the World War One raids. <laughs> Attention, please. <laughs> please leave the building immediately. <laughs> please leave the building immediately by the nearest exit. Is this the Brexit alarm? <laughs> 4.30 January 31st. Everyone has to exit. <laughs> All Europeans exit. <laughs> it can't work anymore because of this. Um, you, you don't have UK citizenship, either of you. Do you have to leave the building? No, no, I have no. settled status. Sadia does not I don't, though. I need to do it before 11 p.m. today. Please respond to all future fire alarms. Okay. Why well, I simple. We're in the clear? Yeah, okay. Where were we? <laughs> we're talking about the formality versus oh, informality. Yeah, formality versus informality of arbitration, specifically. Because mm, uh, in, in email communication still, you know, you, you write dear counsel, you don't write dear first name person to the lead counsel on the other side. Even if you get a personal email from that person, if anyone else is copied, you still maintain titles and formalities. But generally speaking, especially in like oral communication and during hearings, and it's like so collegial yeah. in, in a way that I don't think uh, people on their way into the business fully appreciate generally. I think it also, I mean, when I was working... Um, in in New York, and I I feel also like you just become very first name basis very quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas in France, it's a bit more formal, um, so mm. you address your emails a bit differently. And but you're right. I think in the community, mostly people are on first name basis. Well, um, that's the point. Is that yeah. because it is such a small community that it would be like you mm. know a false formality just to yeah. like call everyone by their last name because right. you see them at a conference you have a drink with them yeah. like i last night when i had dinner with someone who was opposing counsel in another case at a previous firm that they were at so you were just saying like i would never then address her later on in another right. arbitration with her last name unless it was to the tribunal i think unless it's the tribunal i think that's the point i know you know i've seen multiple times that people do know the president or the tribunal mm-hmm. and they would still say right mr president you know, our, our it must be so chair. funny, though. Well, you know, I think you just you were all, you know, playing a role also, right? Yeah, yeah. you're like you're addressing like the office and not the person. You're addressing yeah. uh, the function okay. of tribunal president and not uh-huh. the person who holds it. Yeah, I think so. And also, like I, I like, for example, when you work day in, day out with experts, you get close and I still, even though we're on first name basis, like regularly, because we're talking all the time, like if I were to cross-examine MR, I would say Mr. Diaria instead of. Right. Or Mrs. Yeah, I don't know. I like to maintain that kind of formality in, in, in a Well, it tribunal. helps with like the pondus as a witness. Yeah, as opposed to just 
and be like, hey, you know. <laughs> hey, Steve. <laughs> Remember what we said at <laughs> yesterday? <laughs> yeah. Uh, unrelated, very minor point, which is off of my list, why a reason I feel at home in arbitration is uh, the punctuality. <laughs> a very, very small thing. I, ha- I have, it's like a running thing with people close to me in my life as a, as a private citizen. Like my, my <laughs> memoirs should be called Waiting for People in the Bar because I'm always oh exactly on time. And professionally, I feel at home with that. If you agree that you're going to have a phone call at 3 p.m., you know if you're not the one calling, so the other person is going to call you on the dot 3 p.m., like 3.00. You can yeah. always trust on people showing up on time and being exactly punctual because it's crucially uh, important to the business and I tell that to students or told that to students when I still taught as well like we, we we start on time if you're not here exactly the second I look at my watch to determine the exact second that's when the lecture starts if you're not here that's on you and you'll have a, a problem going forward because that matters when time is so important yeah to people in this there business. was there was a quote and I don't know who it is but it was basically having to do with um, punctuality and it says the train times that are listed is the minute before is the time you need to be at the train yeah. because the train time is the time the train departs. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you need to be there a minute early for the doors to close before the train departs at yeah. 4 p.m. Yeah, of course. So you should treat that in the way that you arrive to an event. Like you need to not only be there prepared, but it's again, it's you know showing your preparedness at the time stated, i.e., when the hearing starts at nine. You need to have all your documents prepared at 8.30 for the catastrophe, the pen you're missing, all that stuff is found and then you're ready to go at 9. Also like your your closing uh, presentation is supposed to be X minutes. Oh yeah. It has to be X minutes, like you you have to have figured that out. (laughs) Keeping time, that's a big one. I mean I've seen some tribunals being more or less, um, you know, strict about this but Mm. it really does piss them off when they're like five minutes, it's just five minutes, you know. Um, and you have to stick to time, which maybe some in some cultures. I don't. I'm not going to cite any, but five <laughs> minutes is, is more than than five minutes. You know. <laughs> um, so yeah, that that's one of the things. But in terms of emails, like, have you have you ever used smileys? <laughs> <gasps> With maybe like, for like. Uh, assistant helping me on no but not like with the other side oh absolutely not. no yeah joel have you on that not no not in like official correspondence that will end up on the record oh okay not smileys but it is a power move i think basically if you show up to a meeting and you're the one without a tie it's almost like you're more important because you didn't need to wear the tie and the person wearing the tie is the scrub who needs to be there so there's almost like a play of informality, I think that that's a great do. point because, and also like the the partners and arbitrators, the boomers essentially, they have now embraced like smileys and emojis. Emojis have entered boomer conscience, so people who are like right. sixty plus are now comfortable using that, and they can do that as sort of a sign of their the power essentially. Mix up the emojis sometimes because they don't know what it means. <laughs> the eggplant. I'm actually yeah, egg having plant. eggplant for lunch. <laughs> <laughs> I'm having fried egg, which means like lunch break. (laughs) Not really, guys. (laughs) Other kind of break. (laughs) Oh my. Uh, No, I. But I I mean, no one's using emojis in like any sort of emails, are they, Joel? I have seen that actually. Yes, and like the more informal part. We know when. 
I can't remember the exact circumstance, but like a case management conference is rescheduled repeatedly or something that is like just a meta procedural small point and there's already been a lot of back and forth. So this is obviously not going to be part of the official like procedural history. Then I've seen senior people like happy we could finally figure this out or something like that. I roll. I roll emoji. <laughs> yeah. Um, but what about um, tone as far as being aggressive? Mm. Passive aggressive. Passive aggressive I've is seen the that key. A lot of time, passive aggressiveness. Then yeah. it turns into like English Parliament, where it's like, as my learned colleagues <laughs> so <laughs> wrongly point out. <laughs> um, yeah. oh, I'm so bad at that. What about disclosing discussions with opposing counsel to prove? some sort of bad faith effort. Mm. We're getting way off topic here. Yeah. No, <laughs> but you're, um, I haven't really seen that happen. I know there's been discussion about that, but it's just, okay. Again, it comes back to the first point of how small this community is. Mm -hmm. I think this is not proper. <laughs> You know, yeah. Right? I mean, you could say you got to play fair. Yeah, you got to play fair. You can say that we they've attempted discussions or yada yada, and you can say there's been bad faith, but right. you don't need to be like, this is what you don't see mean. attached. Exactly, yeah. see attached conversation or email without yeah. checking with the other person before, or you can warn them, be like, this is what I'm gonna do, or I don't know. Right. It just doesn't seem like something I would consider a good camaraderie, or you know. I don't know. <laughs> Um, Have you seen that, Joel? Happen before? Uh, no, I don't think so. Uh, actually, not in my experience. I was thinking about something slightly different and slightly more on topic. It just came to me now that I'm, I've been in New York for a few weeks and it's a new context. This is sort of uh, tags on to both the small community and to the New Year's resolution not to make arbitration so sexier than it is. There's a lot of oh, do you know X? Or have you worked with X? I think it's, that's, mm. I mean, always in every kind of community context that happens a lot, but I, it happens so frequently in this world and it has started now just lately to annoy me. Like there's pretty significant amount of just casual cocktail conversation or meeting people in the business. It's just like matching Facebook friends orally, essentially. Oh, yeah. So yeah. you've been to you've been to Buenos Aires. Do you know her? Or oh, yeah. you worked at that firm. Do you know blah 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 and blah 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 and blah blah blah. And oh, we're like great friends. Yeah, exactly. It's like five minutes of back and forth, just like name dropping people you presumably both know, and then that that that's the conversation essentially. Yeah, that doesn't give you anything. That's just start trying to like identify your role in the pecking order, basically. Right. Uh, yeah. How? Who do you know that's high up on the chain, and how well do you know them? Ready, go. Uh, no, I think you you are right. So what what did you wish you would have known that this existed and you would have avoided it, or that you would have gotten started earlier on getting to know everyone? <laughs> no, <laughs> no, the former. I wish I, I wish I would have made a resolution nine years ago never to start a sentence with "Oh, do you know?" and then a person's name, and that would just have stayed out of that entirely. Yeah, yeah. Because it really now. doesn't matter. I think because it it is this like bit of fame within this like weird niche no one cares we've made a podcast about it <laughs> level <laughs> field of arbitration uh, but we think it's like so important so it's like it's creating this like um you know mythified hierarchy mm -hmm. um that we have all like learned to respect and strive to be a part of almost yeah, yeah i know that's a Not bit nice. uncomfortable <laughs> speaking of hierarchy that's something that you but i get you know i guess it's common among um, 
all fields of, in the legal profession, but I mean, the hi- hierarchical structure is something I wish I would have known I or mean, I would for, formal something. hierarchy, not the like which arbitrator is m- the most important, but actual no, form- no, no, like structure. formal hierarchy. Mm. Yeah. Within, within the, um, within the law firm. Cause some people start oh. and they don't think, um, as a junior, when you're in a meeting and someone's like, Oh, can you make a copy of this? Most junior person in the room immediately gets up without anyone having to say the name and takes a piece of paper and goes make the copy without mm-hmm. any sort of discussion. And it's like this presumed level of everybody knows their year of experience in the room. Anything that needs to be done, it goes from low to high as mm-hmm. who as who does it. Who's going to file the emails? Who's going to keep a record of the case file? Um, that's all based on the hierarchical structure. And I think a good junior is someone who takes initiative in doing the horrible yeah. tasks. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I was taught that from my mentor and it it helped because it just showed you were a team player as a junior because and you don't need to be in the meetings like you don't need to be the one who's hearing what the client has to say um, from start to finish. So if you hear someone needs something, you should be the one to take the hit. Mm -hmm. This is a confusing jungle to me as a law firm outsider. I'm still having a hard time. Figuring out who relates really to whom in what way. Yeah. <laughs> there are so many unwritten rules about how you have to behave, right? Yeah. In a law firm and how you're supposed exactly, and it goes to the tone, not only of your emails but also how you know you carry yourself, you present yourself, mm-hmm. you know how you, how you're supposed to dress. Also, I think as part of the whole yeah. equation. I mean, is there a casual Friday? Should we pay attention to casual Friday? How casual can Friday be? Right. You know. You look um, casual today, Brian. It is Friday. Okay. <laughs> Every time I come on Friday, everyone's like, whoa, casual Friday. <laughs> I was like, well, what, what is it supposed to mean? But you're right. I mean, you can't, I, I mean, some people would say you can't wear yeah. jeans or sneakers. No, no. I, I mean, I guess it's, it's again, it's, it's kind of, um, you adapt, right? I mean, you, there's no, I think everyone doesn't do the same thing. So if you're in a group where um, it's, what does it mean, casual Friday? Maybe you have meetings <laughs> right, with a client. Right. Maybe it's important. And so you, you, it doesn't make any sense to be like, oh, casual Friday, I don't have my suit on. And yeah. I don't. What? No, they just adapt yourself. And similarly, if there's one day where you're just in the office, not going to see anyone, and you're just more comfortable, what do you really need to mm-hmm. put on a suit? Well, if everyone is in a suit, then I guess yes. The answer yeah. is yes. But if not, then. So it's a question of adapting yourself, I think, to the tone and culture. Constantly done that if you work with different people from different cultures all the time. You just, you know, what is appropriate, what is not appropriate. Can you make jokes about this? Can you not make jokes about this? You know? Um, Oh, we had that whole talk yesterday. We had a mandatory, um, or someone flew in from the U.S. to teach us about, like, respect in the workplace. Oh, my gosh, really? And one of them was making jokes. Um, and English people take a pride in jokes yeah. and banter, but not only yeah. is it jokes, but it's like offensive jokes mm-hmm. and like cutting jokes at the expense of someone. So it's like all the things that wrapped up in the jokes you shouldn't say, especially in the U.S. And every culture is different, but like in the U.S., you never make a joke about someone's no. appearance. But English people, it's like it's like making fun of apple pie to an American. Like you can't take away the joke aspect <laughs> of. So that's that, yeah. that doesn't translate. Yeah, I, I have this thing where I, I remember. <laughs> I, so if I make jokes about being, um, so I'm a Pakistani origin. 
people know that when they listen to me, they probably don't because they can't see me. But so I look Pakistani. And so if I make a joke on race or something and like, you know, on myself, like people get immediately uncomfortable because mm. they don't know if I'm targeting racism or I'm just... Can we just, laugh? Yeah, can we laugh? Can we laugh? <laughs> or, um, so that I've been having fun with that actually. <laughs> <laughs> I do the same with Judaism. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, you just have to kind of adapt to people's tone. But one of the things of tone that I I have also seen and which is something that really pisses me off is and we've talked about this already is punctuation. Mm-hmm. But like for example, if you have an email and like all exclamation marks that aren't supposed to be there or yeah. multiple like periods as well you're just kind of like what what is that supposed to mean like it does convey some kind of uh, feeling to a message which yeah. is unnecessary i think just, yeah, just no feelings no feelings no. in your message <laughs> and also if you're angry it's like you know going in a in a grocery store where you're hungry do not go shopping when you're hungry yeah. store. Like, <laughs> if you're angry and you want to send an email like just save it and don't Draft it. send it <laughs> your other half or whatever it is to read. I that would be absolutely. Yeah, somebody said that to me, and it's so true. Just just relax. And I read it again, <laughs> and then you feel the aggression. <laughs> and you're like, whoa, I'm so glad I didn't. You need to turn it down. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. One thing I always wanted to do, which we probably should do, we can do it on this podcast. We're a good crowd to do it. Is to just compile a list of all the goddamn acronyms in this field that you're expected to know. And if you've never, you know, done an internship or worked in arbitration and you come as a first year, you have no background in this. It's like, it's just like ancient Greek. Yeah. yeah. Like the, um, you taught me something, uh, uh, post post PHP post hearing briefs exactly. DCF that Brian has tattooed. Oh yeah, uh, DCF. Of course, yeah. I was in an interview. And, I was oh, PO. Yeah. I was in an interview. And someone said BD when I was. Oh yeah, you know, BD. Yeah. I didn't business development. Business development. Uh, yeah. See, I was like, they're like, how's yeah. your? What have you done for BD? And I was like. But what? Brian development. Yeah. <laughs> I think you should just start drafting like a, a joint Google Doc with like what we what you should have in your hand as like entry level dictionary that you can start off on the same page yeah. as everyone else. Absolutely. No, that that is something you would like to have the leg yeah. up on when you get There's started. Another one which you mentioned was CMC. Yeah. Still don't know what that means. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Conference. Management call, con- oh my gosh, see, I can't yeah. remember. You know now, you're, you must be scheduling a lot of CMCs. Yes, no? I do actually. <laughs> case, case management conference. Yeah, yeah thank you. CMCs. Thank you very much. Case management conference, yeah. Um, yeah, there's plenty of those too. We'll make yeah. a list. Yeah, I'm not joking. I, I will actually make a list because it's also helpful for people who want to enter the business without any like previous ties to it. It's almost say, like a class. And it's so cute when someone's like, ISID cases. And you're like, what? What did you say? Yeah. Like, exit cases. Oh, uh, and they're yeah. like, I see. Yeah, because they don't, they've never, you know, they've just read right. it. Yeah. Right. I mean, Uncontrolled rules. Uncontrolled rules. <laughs> yeah. You should have like phonetic <laughs> things within parentheses in this oh, list. That's too. Like, true how too. They they don't, if you never heard it, then people don't know, right? That's so, very true. Um, Okay, yeah. let's agree to do that. I think that's a good note to end on with a, a call for action that we have to take upon ourselves and then share it as widely as possible. We'll share you. Um, let's contact us. 
at the ARB station on Twitter. Write to us at the arbitration station at gmail.com. Don't forget to use offer code ARB-10 for the ICC Paris Arbitration Week, the European Conference and Training, and the IA Reporter uh, Arbitration Station p- code for an extension to your free trial. Thank you, Rishi. Thank you, Jan, who still edits everything that we do. Thank you so much. Thank you, Thank you. I Reporter. Thank you, Brian. Thank you, Sadia. <laughs> See Thank you, you in your world. <laughs> Brexit, your world. Ah. Yeah. Bye. 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 <laughs>